As a teacher, have you ever received feedback from an administrator who only was in your classroom once, twice, maybe three times a year? And if you are the administrator, did you feel the time in the teacher's class was enough to provide true feedback to help with the progress? This week's guest, Craig Randall, shares how he struggled with the traditional teacher assessment process and the strategies he used to create a new trust-based program. In this episode, we also discuss teaching and leading overseas, focusing on teacher strengths, consistency of providing feedback, and how to construct trust-based observations. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Craig, thank you so much for being on the podcast tonight. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, Joshua. I'm really uh, thankful to have the opportunity. And Craig, I have just loved learning about your leadership journey, and I would love for you to just share a little bit about yourself and how you became an author and a coach, teacher, principal of schools. Sure. I think I've had a fairly eclectic uh, educational journey, but pretty much it's all been in education. Started out my career as an elementary school counselor and in the Washington State, Western Washington area. Then did a year of middle school, actually in a classroom with all severe behavior kids and literally had to do restraint 180 straight days. It was it was crazy. Wow. But then as we do, oftentimes we coach on the side. And so I coached basketball on the side and an opportunity to take a fairly large detour to small college basketball coaching came up. And because I have a really amazing wife who tolerated the massive pay cut that that was, (laughs) um, we went and uh, did that for uh, the next seven years. We were also turning 40 right in that time frame. And we had always talked about working at international schools. And we thought, wow, if we don't do it now, we'll never do it. Mm-hmm. And so then we went to a job fair and then got jobs in Warsaw, Poland. And I was teaching there. One of the principals there said, Craig, you know, you'd be good at administration. And I was reluctant, but then I decided to go for it. And in the summers and online, I did my principal certification through a university here in Washington, then got my first assistant principal job in Korea. And worked my way around some other international schools and then came home two, three years ago now. And we had enough money saved up from international schools, which is one of the nice things about that life that um, I was able to basically go to a coffee shop on Monday through Friday and, and write a book. And it came out in September. That's awesome. And we're definitely going to talk about that book, but um, I want to learn about just the the differences between being an educator in the United States and and overseas. And was that really a, a difficult challenge for you? You know, they're international schools, so really they're American schools and they run very much uh, American style for the most part. Definitely the student population is different. I think the smallest number of nationalities we had was 25 and the largest was 90 nationalities of students. And so there's definitely different cultural norms within each country of the and the home population of that country is the largest non-American population. And so you have to adapt to some of those things and your day-to-day life outside of school can be a little more challenging in terms of getting around and grocery shopping and things like that. But mm-hmm. your school life is really, I mean, socioeconomically, they're they are all privileged. So sure. there's definitely issues you're dealing with, but not those kind of issues. Right. So yeah, it's yeah. not that different. So as far as going from a teacher to a assistant principal, what was that transition like? And what were maybe some misconceptions you had within that, that process? Well, it was great, actually. And it was really, it was great because 
my mentor in my principal certification program provided me with an alternative way to do observations than had been the standard model. So when I did that, teachers responded just so overwhelmingly positively that I, I really fell in love with it because sure. you're making an impact right away. So I'm not sure I had misconceptions mm -hmm. about it, though I'm just thinking the first time I had a parent that their child had done academic dishonesty was a common issue when we were in South Korea. And uh, there's so much pressure on the kids to get into university there. And the proper university actually dictates the ceiling of how high you can achieve working for a company like Hyundai or something like that. And so it's intense, intense pressure. And so I remember a parent came in and I think she had, I, I was new. And so instead of saying she wasn't honest, I said she lied. And the dad was furious and said he was going to sue me. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, oh, no, no, no. Should I back down? Should I back down? I can't back down. Should I back down? No, I can't. Yes, maybe. And I didn't. And then I, as soon as the parents left, my uh, secretary who would translate was like, oh, he's mad. So I remember I ran down to my <laughs> boss's office. Well, actually, all the principals were having a meeting and I knocked on the door and and I told him what happened and I was just scared to death. And, and he reached out his hand and shook my hand and he said, uh, welcome to admin. You're no longer a virgin. <laughs> and so that's like, I don't know if it's a misconception, but that's sure. like a really early story that stands out. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to the observation piece. So, you know, as yeah. a new administrator, I remember myself going into classrooms and I was just so nervous because I was fresh in the job. And I'm like, how am I going to mm -hmm. help this teacher that has been teaching longer than I've been in education? Yeah, um, yeah. And that was kind of a scary moment for me. So how was that for you? And you know, you talked about your mentor giving you an opportunity to do the observations a little bit different. So what did that look like? So in his, I'll, I'll go back to a supervision class and, mm -hmm. and just instantly, I remember being frustrated with observations, thinking they weren't frequent enough. And even in the ideal setting, just giving you ratings on those things and then telling you a bunch of things you should get better at. And it just seemed wrong. And I would talk to other people and they would agree, but just sort of say that was the way it was. And I remember him the first day just saying, you have to be in classes every day. You have to be watching teachers, having reflective conversations, supporting them, building off their strengths. And, and I just remember this light bulb, like, oh my gosh. And we talked about how often, and he came up with like an hour a day, 20 minute observations. And so in his class, we would bring little 10 minute lessons that we would have to teach. Hmm. And well, one of us uh, uh, did an observation and then immediately after did a reflective conversation and then immediately after did a class reflection of the reflective conversation. And so we did that and it was anchored by two questions that still drive the model today. And they were, what were you doing to help students learn? And if you had it to do over again, what if anything might you do differently? So I'll say two things is one, we did this so many times that by the time I was ready to start the job, I was really confident because we practiced so much. Sure. And then two, just think what a switch it is instead of my coming in and telling you things, I'm sitting down in your room and I'm asking you and listening to what you have to say. And so just right off the bat, that just set me on a mode where teachers right away were just saying, no one's ever asked me about my teaching before. People have been teaching 20 some years. And mm -hmm. so I just knew right away I was onto something. Then the next thing I would do is I would share the strengths. And back then we just scripted and I would just write what I saw and shared. And so there were no ratings involved, but I could also tell just like embarrassed grins of, of, of appreciation that you'd notice strengths and people saying, no one's ever talked to me about the things that I do well before. And there's a certain sadness in that. And so instantly just those two things, even before I offered any suggestions, 
I could tell where it's novel in a really sad way sure. to many of the teachers I worked with. And then I didn't give advice though, or recommendations right away for a couple of reasons. One, I thought it was arrogant of me being brand new to come in and tell you what I think you should get better at. And I also thought, you think how little, even in the best circumstances in trust space, we're doing 12 observations a week, but even in those circumstances, I'm seeing what 1% of your teaching maybe. And so what if I tell you to get better at something that you're good at, I just hadn't seen yet, then what's that going to do? And then the other reason was the new guy wanting to be liked and a little nervous about giving suggestions. And so because I just stopped the observations at those two places, about the third cycle through, I started to get a bunch of the teachers would say, okay, 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 but what can I get better at? And that was like a, I mean, I didn't know it was going to end up where it was, but that was like (laughs) a hallelujah moment for me that Wow, somehow, because I just asked questions and I shared strengths and waited, something happened where they felt comfortable asking. Mm -hmm. And then because that happened, I would see teachers make dramatic, dramatic changes to practice. And and that's really how it started. Which obviously led into your book, Trust-Based Observations. And so I'd love to talk about that model. And you've you've kind of touched on a few of those things. But for those who haven't read your book yet, could you just kind of give a quick synopsis? Yeah. So I'm going to start by saying that the, the two main models that are out there right now are Marzano and Danielson. Yep. Like in our state, there's a self-ID one by the University of Washington, but the main models across the country, those are some variants of those. And so the truth is, and research has shown this, that they're not improving teaching and learning. And just as an example, the Gates Foundation's Measures of Effective Teaching, seven years, $200 million, which was really, and it was designed to develop a more robust evaluation system to improve teaching, learning outcomes, and graduation rates, and it was really almost exclusively a variant of the Danielson model, showed no sustained improvement. And so as I was starting to realize that maybe there was something there because some people said, you got to protect your work, I decided to write an article. And as I did, I found a guy named Matt O'Leary out of Great Britain, who I think is the predominant researcher on observation evaluation in the world. And his research found out that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate people, but as I realized later, I think he meant evaluatively rate pedagogy, people started playing it safe, stopped taking risks, and it inhibited risk-taking, innovation, and creativity. And so, like, intuitively, I knew that, but it was, like, to find that information out, like, on paper that said it, I think, really helped in the writing of the book to support why that's not working and why we have to try something else. But the model in its essence, if you break it down to its core, it's 12 20 minute observations per week, 12 reflective conversations uh, per week as well. So three on Monday and then six Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, you're doing reflective and observations, and then just three reflectives on Friday. We found that two days off between Friday and Monday just played with memories too much. And so it's really eight hours a week. So it's manageable. Mm -hmm. And we do these observations. We now have a template and we just have nine areas of pedagogy and we leave stuff out, but we have an area on the bottom where you can write things. But research on that says anything more than 10. And we start to lose the force through the trees as I start to check off boxes instead of seeing the teaching. And then Everything from there on is all about building trusting relationships. And so if you're seven or 17 or 37, going to the principal's office feels like going to the principal's office. So to build trust, we go into their space and we ask permission to have the reflective conversation. No one ever turns you down because there's a hierarchical difference in our jobs. We don't sit across from the teacher because that magnifies that we sit beside them and we have our observation template right there so they can see as we're doing it and then we start by asking the questions and Mm -hmm. right now it's developed to where we found that 
for at least the first three visits, we don't offer any suggestions. And if you sense that there's still resistance, which if people have been teaching in a tr traditional system for a long time and have had some tough bosses, we say take up to a whole year if you want to, because we're playing the long game. Anyway, at some point along the way, you offer a suggestion. And even there, it's asking permission. So everything is designed. And of course, when we're having these conversations, when we're asking these questions, when we're sharing strengths, it's all about listening and empathy and tone of voice and kindness and all that. And that's the core of the observation model. But to make it more comprehensive, we've also incorporated and blended in professional development to it as well. So even though we don't have a rubric for the nine areas of pedagogy that we use, we have one so the teachers can self-assess. Sure. And so the teachers self-assess at the beginning of the year and they pick one of those nine areas and we've got professional development communities, teacher-led in those nine areas. So their annual goal is totally tied to that. So really what we're doing is we're supporting growth at the same time and really developing a growth mindset as they're doing these action research goals. And then because this is an important piece, because the evaluation part of the ratings of pedagogy really interferes with people taking risks. We realized, well, I realized we had to eliminate that and come up with something else. So yeah. planning and preparation, that's fair. No one's going to argue with that. Professionalism, that's fair in any job. Collegiality and communication, that's fair in any job that works with people. And so because we've set up everything to help support a growth mindset, we added evaluate mindset instead. And so you'd have to be really, really resistant to do that. And that way you're able to still evaluate people. And if you have to do something generally to me, in my experience, if somebody's got an issue that ultimately has to lead to that area where you have to make a decision like that, one of those other three categories will easily fall within that. Yeah. And so that's in a nutshell, trust-based observations. No, I love it. It's such a different model completely because that trust piece is so important. And, you know, when you're only in a classroom, maybe once, twice, three times in a school year. I mean, how are you really truly giving the feedback that's needed for, for the teacher? And then how is that trust actually being built? So I love I love that process and that model. I wanna talk about kind of the end point, right? So, you know, teachers are used to getting an evaluation at the end where they're actually getting yep. feedback that's, like you said, check boxes. <laughs> are yep. you proficient? Are you developing, you know, those types of terms? Yeah. yeah. So what does that look like at the end for your model? Like, what does the, the evaluation feedback look like? Listen, my goal long-term is to make trust-based a model because I know it works and improves. Mm -hmm. So it's a long process. And right now, even as we get into schools, like I did a training recently in Mississippi, and she still has to provide the end of the year Mississippi thing. Sure. But she's been able to eliminate the ratings for the rest of the year. And so mm -hmm. we live with that. But yep. in the ideal version, Basically, so remember, we're cycling through 12 classes a week. So we have tons of information that we've right. got all the year. There. So it's, it's really easy to cut and paste into mm -hmm. the final meeting. And so you still have an end of the year evaluation, but you've been talking about everything along the way. And mm -hmm. if you've gotten a struggle in one of those other three areas, that's come up along the way. And so you've, you've addressed that, right? Yeah. We talk about difficult conversations. And so if you have to do that, you do that and create a plan. But but so you provide ratings in those and on the map and the mindset, but just only at the end of the year, yet you've, you've been open and transparent about everything all year. We're just not, we're taking out the one area that gets in the way of people taking chances. One of the things that's on the form, we actually have an extra, two extra areas on the form that aren't pedagogy. Okay. And one is called risk-taking and innovation. And it's not there because it's necessarily anything that we're looking for. It's actually there for us as observers to remember to regularly send the message to our teachers 
that our ultimate goal is for you as a teacher to get to the point where you with total confidence can know that I can walk into your class, watch you try something new that completely bombs, goes sideways, is a disaster, yet know the next day you're going to receive a congratulatory fist bump for taking risks. And when we can create those conditions, teachers will take risks and just necessarily there will be growth and improvement. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. All right, I got to ask, what are some things that you've seen teachers do that are innovative and risk-taking that probably I wouldn't see in my school because I'm doing the traditional model of observation? So I'd say the changes you'd see, the magnitude of changes, maybe what I would suggest that, sure. that we see. So I'll give you two examples. So one is I had a teacher who was, uh, she was a very strong math teacher, amazing at relationships. She's one of those ones where at lunch, kids would come in and unload and share their problems. And she was there for them. Her heart was huge. And, and if I were to stereotype, I would say math teachers tend to be the most traditional, do the problem on the board, ask questions, move on to the next problem. And of course, that's not across the board, but just a general stereotype. And, and she fit that category. And so somehow, some way, she kind of knew at the same time. And so it came to that point where I can't really remember whether she asked or I offered or whatever, but I had another teacher in the building. And one of the great things about trust-based that was a bonus that I never really realized is because we're in classes so much we really realize who are in-house experts at what different areas of teaching because we see them so much more sure. so I had a biology teacher who had gone to the flip model and he was also a Kagan master and, and cooperative learning at the same time and so I brought up the flip thing to her and I'd set it up ahead of time because we always want to make sure for offering advice that the support is in place that he would be happy to meet with her and she said sure she went, met with him that day or the next day, by the end of the week had started screencasting her lectures and completely flipped her model. And we'd been doing a lot of Kagan in the building. And so that was now their homework. And I come into the class the next time and the kids are spending almost the entire class in these tables of four, working on things, helping each other solve the problem. So they immediately know and they're teaching each other. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Another example was I had a an AP micro and macroeconomics teacher, which those are incredibly difficult classes. Yes. And he was content knowledge through the roof, really nice guy, good sense of humor. But he was literally at the lectern lecturing for all 75 minutes of our block classes. And this was in Korea and about 20% of the kids were getting two or one, which is a lot in Korea for sure, even though those classes are hard. Mm -hmm. And so we had a conversation with him where the trust was built, where we talked about adding some cooperative learning and the kids are learning from each other more in that. And we were able to send him to a Kagan cooperative learning conference over the summer, completely flipped everything. The kids were actually teaching each other in these little mini groups the whole time. Next year, 100% pass rate. Wow. So these are like dramatic changes in practice, not just little things. And, and in some ways, it's not about like making those incremental changes. It's about like, what can I add to my practice new that's really going to have the most bang for my buck? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been more like that kind of thing in terms of impact and building capacity. Right. I'm curious, did that help culture within your school building? Oh, 
Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. It's a culture of people feel so positive and trusted. And, and, and then when they're putting on, I mean, the, the part about the PDs evolved over time, but at first we would just do little lunch sessions with somebody that I'd noticed was really good at something. But then these teachers would come and you've asked a teacher if they'd lead a PD session on something. I mean, who doesn't love that? And then that carries over and then they're learning from each other and they're learning things that they wouldn't know otherwise. And so People are more willing to share. They're more willing to, with each other, with you things, big ideas that maybe they would have been more tentative about things that it sounds kind of silly and cliched, but it really creates a culture of trust across the school. That's awesome. So for our aspiring leaders that are listening, if they're looking to help improve this, because as a teacher, you don't really get many experiences outside your classroom, but you yeah. know, what are some things that you would ask them to do to kind of hone in on this as far as creating the trust with their maybe their peers and get experience within the classroom of, of helping others? If you think about it in a lot of ways, all we're doing with trust-based observations is saying that the model that we would expect in terms of feedback and good teaching from teacher to student is the same thing that we're doing from principal to teacher. Mm-hmm. We've just changed our audience. Sure. And there's a huge hypocrisy right now between what we're currently doing with observation, evaluation, feedback, and then what's happening between teacher and student. Yeah. So just be cognizant of that. And if you're working with your peers and and just, I mean, it's, it's empathy, it's listening, it's kindness, it's, it's, I mean, it's none of this is rocket science stuff. And so I just think we just, we want to practice that. One of the things that like with new leaders that we're starting to discover, because having a book on a new model come out in the middle of a pandemic is not ideal. But as we're talking about people going in and doing trainings, once we can get into schools again, one of the things that that we've been talking about is like schools, a lot of state legislators have really strict rules about what you can and can't do. But we're discovering now is that many districts have like, not necessarily loopholes, but they've got like innovation in there. So you can present to your district an innovative plan Mm -hmm. to maybe pilot something else. And so if this resonates with you, my suggestion is that you look on your own district and see if there's a way that we can do something. And, And look, if I can't do everything, then maybe I can... Maybe I can do some of it. Maybe I can at least not rate teachers till the end of the year. If I if I can't do that, then then I can be my most kind, empathetic, listening, supportive, build as much trust as I can. Even so, just whatever I can do within the framework of it, like push that to as far as you can. Maybe I can't. Maybe I can just pilot it with three teachers. You know, I mean. So right. we just look for avenues to try something new. And it's I have a. a I did a training in rural Mississippi in December and it was so rural. I had to stay 40 minutes away because that was the closest lodging. Oh, wow. And I just heard back from the principal this morning. She sent me an email and she just finished the first round of visits. And she said, and she's self-described type A, like her experience, she was an athlete. Tell me what's wrong and I'll fix it. Yep. And so for her to change to this, like was was really, really hard, except she knew that what was happening didn't work. She actually gave a teacher a three on something last year, which according to most observations would be good, mm-hmm. but people take it personally. And so the teacher came crying in the next day saying she thought she deserved a four. And that's when the light bulb came off that the traditional way wasn't working. Yep. And she said, 
already now, even though it's hard for her to not focus on what's wrong, she said, I just focus on strengths. And she said, I just watch them glow. And if she's like naturally, and she said, and I had a teacher come in last week at the end of the day and said, I know you're not giving advice yet, but what's something that maybe I could work on? Or there was a coach in one of the buildings who's a fairly traditional lecturing kind of a guy. And she started doing some Kagan training and challenged him to try and put one in and he worked all weekend on it and he wasn't sure and so he came into her and so she had a chance to coach him individually and he was going to add that into his class I think today and so just one round through as she said you've made a difference in like rural Meadville Mississippi and so that's three weeks into the practice she's already seeing the impact that it can have on teachers and their well-being let alone their ability to take risks with time and practice. And doing it in a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So what are the things that administrators are having to do a little bit different with, you know, the guidelines, the safety guidelines for, you know, a pandemic such as this? This is an interesting school district. It's in a national forest mm-hmm. and 60% of the students, just based on where they live, there's no t- connectivity to internet even available there, if you can wow. imagine. So they only have half the kids and it's a small high school, but they can't really have expectations for what they do on the days off. So they're really in this school, they're having to do twice as much stuff in half the amount of time. So that's like, that's my most recent example of what somebody's having to do. That's, I mean, it's all tough, no matter what the examples are. The worst of of course is when you're having to do uh, in person and the hybrid at the same time. I mean, that's, that's not sustainable. Which the feedback piece is probably more important now than ever before, because this is a new experience for all teachers. You know, I'll add to that, that if you're going in and doing uh, Zoom observations, my wife's a new teacher mentor, and so she's doing Zoom observations of her new teachers all the time, is that if I'm doing that with all my teachers regularly, again, using this model where I'm going in so frequently, I might discover little nuggets of somebody that's doing something really amazing in this that we can share out and help the rest of our teachers improve in this really, really difficult time. Craig, I just love this model so much. And for our listeners, if this is resonating with them and they definitely want to try it out, how can they connect with you either on social media or to learn more about trust-based observations? Sure. Well, trustbase.com is the website. And so they can get a hold of me there. They can email me, Craig at trustbase.com. I am on Twitter, um, at trustbasecraig. And I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook, just as Craig Randall as well. So those are the, those are the best ways. But the email and the Twitter are probably the best way to get a hold of me. Amazing. And I'll have all those links in the show notes. Craig, thank you so much for bringing so much wisdom and knowledge about observations and and creating a a true relationship with our teachers and and providing honest and wonderful feedback to our teachers, uh, especially during a time that's so difficult with the pandemic. Thank you, Joshua. I'm really, really thankful for the opportunity to spread the word a little more on trust-based observations. So thanks a million.